Well, um, I want you to imagine a story with me. Imagine you wake up tomorrow morning, and as you're crossing the street there at uh, you know university, walking your class there at the at the light across the street. I want you to imagine a friend walks up to you at the red light, and a friend says to you, "Insert your name. I'll use mine. Ryan, did you hear the news last night? Scientists over in England discovered that after years of research." They have finally found a way to stop cancer cells from growing before they even begin. And what that means is, is that even if cancer is in somebody's body, they have a way to kill cancerous cells while keeping the patient alive. In other words, there's a cure for all forms of cancer. That would be amazing news, you could imagine. But you could imagine, too, how that news would rest and sit with you a little differently if you were someone who what? had cancer, right? Because that would mean all of your hopes come back to you. That means all of your fears about perhaps dying a gruesome death are gone. And that would be if you knew you had cancer. Now, maybe another scenario exists that you've known that you've had cancer for many years, but that you've tried to deny that. You've been living in light of the fact, contrary to the fact That though you've had it, you've said, I don't want to deal with it. And you could imagine how news coming like this, if that were the case, would weigh less, right? You could also imagine a case like this too. Imagine if you had cancer, but you didn't know about it, right? You had it and you didn't know about it, how the news might rest with you differently too. Because why? If you don't know your need, the remedy itself may not weigh as much as it might otherwise. Well, tonight, Paul wants to show us something. He wants to show us something very clearly. Last week, we heard this wonderful news about how God in Christ has welcomed us home in the person and work of Jesus. And in some ways, that was a gem. That was a diamond shining brightly. But the diamond shines brightest against what? A black backdrop. And tonight, we are going to hear a black backdrop. We're going to hear, in other words, why the good news is so good because we're going to examine the diagnosis, as I've titled our talk, and to see why it, in fact, is telling us such bad news. But my hope for you tonight is this. My hope is that you will see that Christ has done everything in the midst of our need. That no matter where you are, no matter who you are, no matter what your story, that there is more grace in Christ then there is sin in you. And that's wonderful, wonderful news tonight. So how are we going to get at this? Well, we're going to take a look tonight at the very troublesome doctrine of God's wrath. How about that for a topic tonight? Well, what we're going to look, we need to see it, y'all. We need to see it because I think without it, without understanding it, the cure is never sweet. The cure will never be sweet to you unless you understand what Paul wants to tell us in these verses. So we're going to take a look at three things tonight. The first of which is what is, what does Paul mean when he talks about the wrath of God? Look with me there in verse 18. Do you see it there? He says this, for the wrath of God is revealed. Now, I've tried to include this in your translation there on the page. That very key word for is important because it tells us what it looks, it hangs on. And it hangs on the verses before it, and that's why I read it. Because I want you to understand that the good news is really, really good because the bad news is really, really bad. Does that make sense? 
And the two go together. Now, the NIV leaves the word for out, and I think that they could put it in there because it certainly is in the Greek text. But let's take an look at what we mean when we talk about the wrath of God. Now, I don't know about you, but um, sometimes when I uh, am driving on uh, university, somebody cuts me off, I get real pissed off, (laughs) and I'm like, what are you doing? You know, get out of my lane or hurry up. And I think that a lot of us think that God is like that. That when we hear about God's wrath, we think capriciousness. Then we project back onto Him this arbitrary understanding of what anger and upsetness is like. And what Paul wants to tell us is that it's nothing of the case. That God is not like that. Instead, I want you to see it something like this. That uh, our understanding of our anger is not what God is getting at when Paul is talking about the wrath of God. Some have noted it like this, that the wrath of God is not spiteful, that it is not irrational, that it is not arbitrary, but instead it is as follows, that it is God's settled, holy revulsion and opposition to all that threatens the good in His beloved creation. Let me read that again. That is God's settled, holy revulsion and opposition to all that threatens the good in His beloved creation. And this happens both individually, so your life, but also corporately. That God really is settled in opposition to injustice in the world. Does that make sense? Not just individually, but at the macro corporate level as well. Let me see if I can illustrate this. Several years ago, well, I guess it was a long time ago, uh, I remember having baseball cards. This was big when I was growing up. And I remember trading a baseball card where I utterly gypped and ripped off a kid who was about three or four years younger than me. Well, my dad found out about it. I guess his parents found out and they told my dad. And my dad called me. I was at another friend's house. And he said, Ryan, um, I want you uh, to tell me what you did. I said, I didn't do anything. I said, uh, I gave him XYZ cards, and every, it, was fair, it was a fair deal, fair and square. I was utterly lying through my teeth. He said, why don't you come on home? And so I came home, and uh, he gave me the old what for, for uh, lying to him and jipping this kid off. And here's the deal. I want you to think about this, that my dad saw me. And my dad saw how I had already lied to him, and how I had exploited somebody who was younger than me. And his discipline on my backside was not coming out of the fact that he, was, that he was hateful towards me. Why did he discipline me? Because he loved me. And he didn't want me to grow up to be a man who thought that it was okay to exploit people and to lie to people. So here it is. His heart for me was settled against that which was crushing and killing me. Do you understand? The same is true when we understand what the wrath of God is about. It is God's settled opposition to all that is in us and in the world, that which is killing us, which is making us less human, which is taking His beloved creation and ruining it. And God is furious about it. 
that sin, that ruin that is in us, God is settled against it. And that is what is meant by the idea of the wrath of God. Now, some of you immediately, immediately come up and say, I don't like that idea because I don't, let me tell you what, I, I just like the God that's just nice and that doesn't get angry and that doesn't really get upset at things. I prefer, Ryan, a God of what? A God of love. Well, I want you to understand, perhaps, that there might not, that might not be the best way to understand things. And, and here's why. I want, you to, I want to read a text to you about a, a Croatian professor at Yale University. His name is Miroslav Volf. How about that for a name? And Volf writes about his experience as he was in uh, Yugoslavia and watching people die around him left and right. And here is what he writes about his war-torn land several decades ago. He says this, I used to think that wrath was unworthy of God. Does that sound familiar? Isn't God love? Shouldn't divine love be beyond wrath? Well, my last resistance to the idea of God's wrath was a casualty of the war in the former Yugoslavia, the region from which I come. According to estimates, listen to these numbers, 200,000 people were killed and over 3 million were displaced. My villages and cities were destroyed. My peoples were shelled day in and day out. Some of them brutalized beyond imagination. He says in another place, their daughters were raped, their women were raped, they were killed, their brothers and fathers' throats were slit wide open. And I could not imagine God not being angry. How did God react to the carnage? By doting on the perpetrators in a grandfatherly fashion? By refusing to condemn the bloodbath, but instead affirming the perpetrators' basic goodness? Wasn't God fiercely angry with them? He says this, Though I used to complain about the indecency of the idea of God's wrath, I came to think that I would have to rebel against a God who wasn't wrathful at the sight of the world's evil. God isn't wrathful in spite of being love. God is wrathful because God is love. What is Volf saying? He is saying this. He wants you to know this, that when you remove and you remove from your idea the concept of a God who looks on sin and turns a blind eye to it, that you don't heighten the idea of the God of love, but that you diminish it. Because the two go together. One more illustration. Any of you, you don't have to raise your hands, who have had family members who have been riddled by substance abuse or other addictions, you know your furious, white-hot anger at the addiction in them, don't you? And your settled anger against it as it deteriorates and makes them less of a mother, less of a father, less of a brother, less of a sister. Your anger against it is not because you hate the person, but why? Because you love them so dearly. And I want you to understand that that's exactly what God is saying. That He has turned His fury, as it were, to the unrighteousness that exists in men. Happy things to talk about, right? No. But we must see it. 
The Bible tells us that this is what's going on. Here's what I want you to see tonight. I want you to wrestle with the parts of the Bible that you don't always like. You see, here's why. Because I want you to see that you as Western Americans have a problem with the idea of God's wrath and God judging sin. Let me say, tell you what. The world has not always thought that way. You see, if you're a marginalized people, you cry out for God to move. You cry out for God to work on your behalf. The idea of God punishing sin is a big deal. And here's what I would suggest to you. If this doesn't make sense to you, I say this ever so gently, perhaps you have led a quite sheltered life. Because if you've ever known real injustice, real harm perpetrated against you, the idea of a God who sees that and is settled and stands up against it makes perfect sense to you. If you've ever seen a family come apart because of some major egregious sin, you know what it's like. You know what it's like to cry out for a God. To cry out for a God to move and act in that way. But not only does God, does Paul tell us rather about what this wrath is, he takes us secondly, secondly to this idea of why of why, sorry, I missed that quote for you guys. Why the wrath of God? Why is God, why is His wrath so, what is He so up in arms about, in other words? Well, look with me at this second chunk of text here from 18 to 23. There's a sequence that follows. That God has put Himself on display, verse 19 tells us. Did you see it there? For what can be known about God is plain to them. All men, you and me, all men everywhere. For what is plain to uh, about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. In other words, Paul is saying that God has put Himself on display in the created world. If you're familiar with Psalm 19, it reads as follows. Look up at the screen. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. God is saying every time you look at the stars at night, every time you dip your toes into the, sea, to the shoreline at, at the ocean, every time that you go to New York City and see what man has built, every time that you watch a baby grow and cry, that you are watching God's handiwork on display. And here is what Paul is saying. He's saying that every single one of us knows about it. That every single one of us knows about it. But here's the deal. It's not that we know about it. It's what? Did you see it there in the text? It says this. That they, what? That they suppress the knowledge of God. That they know about it, but they press it down. That they that they are some that we are um, that we are those who deny it, who live in denial about what he has shown us. In verse eighteen is what I'm referencing. It's like this: uh, somebody shared the illustration with me. Imagine uh, you being in the pool. If, imagine if you had children, and you've taken a uh, one of those large beach balls and you're pushing it under the water, right? And your biceps are flexing like this, and your child says, Daddy, are you holding the uh, volleyball underneath the water? And you go, no, 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 I'm not, I'm not holding the water, holding underwater at all, while your biceps and chest are betraying your very profession, right? Or think about it like this. All of us, the knowledge of God is like this. Have you ever had a sneeze that you've tried to fight back? 
right? No matter how hard you try, what? It's coming out. It's coming out. And the way Paul writes is that all of us are like that, trying to hold back the sneeze. That all of us know deep down that God exists. And no matter how hard we try, the knowledge of it keeps coming back. Why in the world would he be so settled against this? Because this. Did you see it there? They don't honor God and therefore they worship, verse 23, the creation over the creature. What is Paul saying here? He's saying this. That Paul, that God's, um, his wrath is settled against those who would give glory due to God to something else. Think about that. It is giving glory that belongs solely to God to somebody else. Paul is saying this, that all of us worship something. That all of us make something supreme in our lives. It's either the Creator, God, or it's the creation, everything else that you see. And anything in creation can become a God to us. Anything in creation can be something that we look to for our significance, for our value, for our dignity, for our hope, for our rescue. It can be anything. Think about it like this. It can be money, right? So you may say, I'm not a Christian here tonight. This all just sounds like religious jargon. I don't worship anything. I would like to suggest to you, you may not use that language, but you know what it's like to have your life rise and fall on the money that you wish to make. Some of you also know that the God in your life are your studies. If I do well, I'm somebody. If I perform poorly, what? I'm nobody. We know that good things are studies, are money, sex, power, approval, comfort. The list goes on and on, really. Anything can become an idol. That's the way the Bible talks about it. Something we bow down to. Something we give our hearts over to and give glory to it. That give weight to it. That give significance to it. Weight, glory, significance. That belongs to God alone. One pastor put it like this, we're all plagiarists. We have stolen what belongs to God alone and have given it over to created things. It can be anything. Anything. And Paul says because we do that, God's wrath is put on display. Because He is the rightful heir of all weight and all glory. Well, listen, I need to keep moving, but I want to show you this. In sum, I want you to see that we're all guilty. It doesn't matter who you are and that therefore justice is required. And that is what God's wrath is poured out against. I want to ask you one question. What is the thing in your life that if it were to be removed from it would make you say, I'm nothing? I'm nothing. I'm only happy if I have X. I'm only somebody if I have Y. What is that thing? And you'll, or, or, what makes you afraid? And if you will look behind your fears and behind the things that you think if this is removed from my life, you will begin to see what truly reigns as your functional Lord in your life. And I just want to ask you tonight, will you please consider that? Because unless you are honest, unless I'm honest about the things that I give my heart over to, we're never completely understanding 
the diagnosis. We're denying things about us. We're living in denial about us. This is what I love about Christianity, y'all. It frees us to be incredibly honest. It invites us into an impeccable honesty about who we really are. God makes no bones about who we really are before Him. Because He looks at each one of us and He says, all of you, all of you have run to other things. Well, lastly, how does this wrath, as it were, get expressed? How, thirdly, does this get expressed? We're going to take a look at this quote in just a minute, but I want to spend some time looking at it. Three key little phrases there keep showing up, don't they? They keep showing up in verses 24 through 29. It's this little phrase that God gave them up. I think sometimes when we think about wrath, we think about, oh man, God's going to strike us down with a lightning bolt, right? I mean, we're like, oh, God's angry. Just like Zeus from like Bugs Bunny or something. And like, that's the expression of how God would actually do that. Well, the Bible tells us something different. That it's actually something a lot more subtle and something uh, a lot more... Um, I don't know. I don't know how else to say it. It's, it's something that is a lot more subtle and something that we wouldn't imagine. Look with me in verse 24. God says this, Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity. For this reason, in verse 26, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. In verse 28, And since they did not see fit to acknowledge them, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not might but not be done. This idea of turning over is the expression, is the expression of God's wrath to us. Let me say that again. The way that God exercises His wrath is by turning you over to the thing that you think will bring you life, but is only meant to bring about your ruin. That is the display of God's wrath towards sin. And that is sobering. Because what does that mean? That means that that God looks at sin and is completely just to punish it. And He says, you want it? You can have it. You can have it. And it will bring about your ruin. And it will bring about your despair. That is sobering, y'all. That is what this text is teaching. It's not all that it's teaching, but it is teaching this. I want you to think about it like this. Think about it. Um, how many of y'all have ever seen the movie The Resurrection of Jake the Snake? Have you ever seen that? All right, no hand. Awesome. Great. It's going to go over well. Oh, there's one. All right, Mario, you got me. Thanks, man. It is awesome, y'all. Uh, I know none of y'all were like a child of the 80s like I was, but... Um, there was a wrestler, his name was Jake the Snake Roberts, and he was a bad man. And um, he, he apparently later in life, he's had substance abuse problems and has really ruined his life. And uh, several years ago, another wrestler, uh, a man by the name of uh, Diamond Dallas Page, DDP, okay, there it is, yep. Uh, he reaches out to Jake the Snake to help him in his addiction. And Jake moves in with, with, uh, with, uh, Diamond, with Diamond with Dallas, uh, and, uh, and he begins to find recovery. But one of the things that you see over and over in this film is the constant falling 
of Jake the Snake back into his patterns of alcoholism and substance abuse. And what's amazing as you, as you watch this film is that the constancy of Paige with Roberts, that he never gives up, that he constantly is showing up. Is he mad? Yes. Is he furious? Yes. But he never says, you're out. And the image is, later on in the film, that uh, Roberts actually says this, that what got me through it was that he did not quit on me. And I use that as a counter example, as to show you that this is the opposite. Like, like to play the illustration, for God's wrath in that moment, for Paige's wrath in that moment would have literally been to say, you want it, Roberts, you can have it, I'm done. Enjoy the ruined life. Another illustration, a friend of mine, former campus minister, Brian Haybig, shares this story. If y'all ever come over my house in my flower beds, uh, you would see that there are all these little weeds growing out there. I mean, they're nasty, they're ugly. I never get to them except like in the fall when I'm not, well, when I'm not as busy. But here's the wonderful thing. If you were to come over, I can show you real quick how to grow weeds in your garden. It is really, really easy. Do you know what you have to do? Nothing. You just let it go. And in the same way, that's what Paul is telling us about what God's wrath is actually like. That He does nothing. That He turns it over. And He says, you want what you want? You can have it. And people say, well, that doesn't seem fair. That doesn't seem just. And then the retort is, well, what do you want? Listen to what Lewis says. C.S. Lewis says this. What do you want? You ask, why doesn't God just forgive? And Lewis says this. Well, what are you asking God to do? To wipe away your past sins and at all costs? To give them a fresh start? To smooth over every difficulty and offer every miraculous help? But don't you know that's exactly what God has done? That's exactly what God has done on Calvary. That's exactly what He's done. Which leads us to where this plane must land. I want you to understand something. That the good news of the gospel is that God is wooing you even right now in this text to see His mercy to you. Because don't you know that a stinging, seared conscience is actually a gift from God to you? If you lay your hand on a hot eye, the pain that you feel is meant to help you and to preserve you. You lift your hand to preserve your hand, though it hurts like the dickens. And what this is telling us is, is that you must understand the real bad news about yourself first if the good news is ever going to be sweet. Think about it like this. That the good news will only be as sweet as the bad news is bitter. The good news of rescue is lost. Is lost, as it were, when we diminish the idea of the, of the real despair that you and I are in. And what's really amazing is that when we come to the point where we say something like this, that I don't need a God who is angry at sin, who is settled against it, we actually diminish 
we diminish His love for us. Listen to what one theologian long ago wrote. He said this about the modern mind. He says this. This is what the modern mind prefers. We prefer a God without wrath who brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. We want to take all the edges out. We want to take all the sting out. And when we do so, we really miss the beauty of the cure, which is where I want to close tonight. You see, we saw this idea of handing over, handing over, and handing over. And I want you to know there's another part in the book of Romans where that word is used one more time. And if you go to Romans chapter 8 in your Bible, you will see this, that there is another handing over. There's one more handing over in the book of Romans. And I want to read it to you now, dear friends. What then shall we say to these things, Paul says in Romans 8.31? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His only Son, but gave Him up for us all. You see, there was a day where God Himself took His hands off His Son for you and for me. And that God, in that moment, by giving His Son up, that all of the wrath for your unrighteousness, for your selfishness, for all of the shameful acts that you have committed, past, present, and future, all of it was delivered squarely on the Son such that you and I might taste His goodness. It's interesting that the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 51 talks about God's wrath being an image of a bowl of wine that He has made His people drink. And He says this, the day is coming where you will no longer have to drink of My cup. You won't have to drink of it anymore. And there's a man in the Garden of Gethsemane before he was to pass away the next morning, a man named Jesus, who was on his knees praying this very prayer, Lord, if there be any other way that this might happen, would you please allow it? In other words, will you please let this cup pass from me? And every biblical commentator that you read will tell you that the cup that Jesus wishes to have been passed from him is the cup of God's wrath that you and I ought to be drinking. And so one biblical theologian, a man named Ed Clowney, put it this way, that Jesus drinks the cup of God's wrath down to the dregs such that you and me, dear friends, are able to drink the cup of His blessing in His presence forever down to the, down to the dregs. One great hymn writer wrote this. It talks about how the wrath of God and how the love of God meet on the cross. God's wrath was fully exhausted on Jesus for you. And you are given the full benefits of His perfect obedience credited into your account, which is God's love and mercy and acceptance of you. And the hymn goes like this. It reads as follows. That let us wonder, grace and justice... 
join to mercy's store. And when through grace in Christ our trust is, here it is, justice smiles and asks no more. It cannot ask any more justice from you if God has poured out the fullness of His justice in Christ. And so it takes us back to where we began. The cure is sweet, is it not? But it's only sweet when we're honest about who we are. Romans delivers hard news about us. It's the black backdrop against which the gem and diamond of God's grace and acceptance in fatherhood and righteousness shines ever so brightly, dear friends. If you are in Christ tonight, this is true of you. If you're not in Christ tonight, it is an offer for you tonight to take. And I would love to tell you more about that. Will you pray with me?